later, I got a phone call from my manager at, at uh, UK Athletics who said, essentially, we don't think you've got the potential to make it to London and your funding is being cut with immediate effect. Um, and that was it. The dream was over and I was no longer part of the team. And London seemed like something that was never going to Hello, my name is Ashley Simcock and welcome to the Guide to RP podcast the show that helps people who've been diagnosed with retinitis pigmentosa. How do we do this? By sharing stories from our peers and how they still stay on track on their journey to creating the best journey of themselves. Today, I am very excited to be joined by someone who has come back from battling depression to being a Paralympic champion. Today, he's captured 14 gold medals in paracycling and has been awarded an honorary degree of Aberdeen and MBE and is now about to launch his first book which goes through on how you can earn your stripes. Welcome to the show Neil Faki. Hello Neil. Hi thank you for having me along today. Um, yeah I don't often get the chance to talk about RP as well so I'm excited about this. Yeah I'm excited to have you on. Thanks for taking the time out. Uh, would you like to tell everyone a little bit about your story? Yeah, by all means. So, um, you know, as, as you've alluded to already, um, I'm a paracyclist and in recent times I've been quite successful, but obviously the story um, sort of ends at, at that point. It just, you know, the beginnings is very different. So I was, uh, I was diagnosed with RP at uh, age of four and it's actually one of my, my first memories as a child. So it was uh, a Christmas day, which is pretty memorable anyway. And my uh, my cousins and my sister, we were all around at my grand's house and we were going out to, to play. And it was um, just coming down dark, which happens very early in Aberdeen, up in the northeast of Scotland in winter. And went running out to the back garden. And I, as always, was being very competitive and wanted to be first out. And so I was running as quickly as I could. And I ran straight into a washing line pole that held up the, the washing line in my grand's garden. And obviously I was fairly shocked I didn't see it um I got taken back into my mom and she gave me a, a nice big hug and said to my dad oh do you think he's got it and he said yeah I think he might have it and at that age when you're four years old and you don't know what it is obviously it's pretty unnerving but uh a few weeks later I was diagnosed with RP and, and learned all about it and it's um it's been something that's been part of my life since then really was there a family history with RP then yeah, so my mum has it, my uh, my uncle and also my gran had it. Uh, I don't believe there was anyone before that from knowledge, but um, yeah, it was within the family, although it was one of those things that, for instance, my mum had never, well, I'm aware of, had ever mentioned it to me before that, and she was probably from that generation that, that quite liked to hide disability and wasn't very open with it. So, you know, in my younger years, it was something that we almost hid away rather than now being something that you know as a, a paralympic athlete a disabled athlete i'm i'm very much in the public eye as being someone with a disability and it's something almost to be celebrated these days hmm. are you going to hospital visits initially there were these sort of things and obviously again at, at four it was quite a quite a daunting thing when you're you're being checked up and, and looked at and and at that age you know it wasn't my eyesight wasn't particularly bad and it was only within sort of poor lighting that it was evident um and obviously knowing the family history that 
that they picked up on it. Otherwise, I suspect it would have been a, a little later. So kind of the, the early years through school, I managed quite well, to be honest. Um, but I mean, as many of the listeners know and yourself know, it does deteriorate over time. And so it became something that I had to, to adapt as I got older. Um, so gradually, as school progressed, I ended up like, I struggled to see the boards. So I progressively got sitting closer and closer to the board and in the rooms. And then it gets to the point where you can no longer see the boards and had to go to large print text for things. And, you know, it's just adapting all the time. Um, whereas for yourself, I guess that, that shock at 19, it's, it's a bit different to someone who's grown up and kind of put up with it throughout your childhood. I think probably at that age is, might be one of the yeah. toughest ages to get hit with it, I'd imagine. Going back to that point, I, I know I speak to a lot of parents who've got children who've got, uh, who might have RP, but they... They seem to be unsure whether to sort of go into whether their children have got RP. So, would you are you glad that you found out as young as you did, or would you rather have been kept it from you till a bit later? Um, I think for me personally, I'm I'm glad I knew that it was something I could learn to accept as I grew up. And there are times when you're growing up that you don't want to be different. I mean, the, the one key thing at school is everyone wants to fit in and be the same, which, you know, changes as soon as you leave school, it suddenly everyone wants to stand out from the crowd in some way. But during my school years, I, I guess I did find it a struggle because I, I wanted to be like everyone else. And the fact that I had something was a bit of a challenge, but I think had I not really known, I would have found it quite confusing as to why my night blindness was so such a big issue as I got to my kind of, around the age of 10, 11, that going out and playing in an evening with my friends was, wasn't was really an option. Like they're all running around and in the dark and I just had no chance. So I guess I needed to know really at that point. So I'm glad that I had the opportunity to understand it from a younger age and, and adapt accordingly. Um, yeah. I'm not a big believer in what type you got? things really. Do you know what type you've got? Uh, I don't know. Different. Types, to be honest. Um, it's kind of it's one of the things because I've had it all my life. I've not really researched into it as I've got older, so I'm just kind of aware of my condition and also those others I've met. How it, it does vary quite significantly as well. Like I still have some. Is your peripheral or central yeah, I, affected? So uh, both are affected. Um, so I have a lot more peripheral than many RP sufferers. Uh, it's definitely there, um, but my central vision is quite blurry. So. I think I've got a wider spectrum, but um, like for instance, I I can see shapes in the distance, like of a, a double decker bus coming down the road from a couple of hundred meters away. But reality is, I can't tell what number it is till it's right at the bus stop. And I'm very aware of those. Like there's another guy in my team actually who's very much extreme tunnel vision, where his central vision is almost perfect and he can spot anything. But you know that loss of peripheral means he's he's constantly walking into things and particularly me because I'm so short he never sees me so um so it's really interesting to see the contrast and and sort of the way the condition can develop as well yeah especially my dad's I mean my the spectrum in my family for example my dad's been completely blind most of his life my uncle's a painter um and my auntie so I've had good, good eyesight until later in age so yeah it's guess it just it's just one of those things that's um a bit of a lottery um to yeah exactly how bad it gets. and you're very aware that the rates sort of 
can vary at any point as well, aren't you? I mean, I've seen some who it's, it's just kind of disappeared very quickly. And then I've been very fortunate so far. It's been very steady, but I think you're always aware there's that, I don't want to say ticking time bomb, but you're aware that things are gradually going. So that's always so kind went, of been something that's... Did you go through your whole school life, like just as a, a normal kid, um, doing sports with all the other kids? Yeah, yeah, totally. And again, going back to, to my mum being someone who kind of hid the disability, I think I did for much of my school life as well. So many of my friends probably weren't aware. I went through school as normal. And as I say, I gradually adapted to kind of sit near the front in classes and things, but I got by fine for the majority of school life. Um, with sport, yeah, again, I was, was all mainstream sport and things. And it wasn't really till I was in my early 20s that I even was particularly aware of Paralympic sport and the fact that there was this option out there for me because I, you know, I'd just been doing it as a hobby and competing at a decent level, able-bodied. But um, yeah, I, I was unaware there's this whole world that was available to me as well. But um, so. how you found out about Paralympic sport? Were you doing sports, individual sports, or were you doing like team sports? It was all kind of individual based, so um, very much running uh one and 200 meters became my my main event so real sprint stuff and it was stuff i was doing on my own but i was training alongside a training group and things but it was all individual um i never really got involved in football as much as i wanted to because i did struggle a little bit with spotting the ball and on the pitch and stuff so i kind of avoided that and that was just a a choice um and then through my my kind of early years i i just sort of um one of the problems came training in that sort of time of year when the, the light levels are, are changing and I'd be out training and it would get dark and I would struggle. So I just kind of had to adapt a bit as to when I could train. I was still kind of shying away slightly. But what, adaptions, um, what adaptions did you make? Initially, nothing really. And it wasn't until later life when I became a, a para-athlete that we started to really, when I, I accepted my disability much more, that we made adaptions that made me obviously someone with a visual impairment so we had these um little led lights we placed down the lane sort of every both sides of the lane every sort of five ten meters so it was essentially like running down an airplane strip that i could i could just see where the lights were and know just to stay there and and hope that no one was gonna venture across me and that became that was actually in the run-up to the paralympics in 2008 i had to do that because the athletics track where i trained closed we were just training on fields uh, in the middle of winter in, in Aberdeen where it was pitch black. So you just ha- had to adapt in that situation. But I didn't really do much prior to that. And again, I'm, I'm kind of I'm almost ashamed of the fact that I, for a lot of my teenage life, I, I was hiding my disability rather than embracing it. And I think I missed out on a lot. And it wasn't, I think, until about the age of 20 when... Um, why, do you think they, why do you think you hit people do hide dis- disability? Because I went through the same thing when I was diagnosed mm. at 19. I... I stayed away from adapting, I stayed away from the cane. Um, I blamed everyone yeah. else. When people pushed into me, I sort of blamed them. Um, yeah. So why is it, do you think? We... Yeah. I mean, there's that. I think you, you also, I mean, for you initially, I guess you go through that kind of denial phase. And I don't know if I was in that for, for many, many years, to be honest. I think one, like one of the hardest points for me was, when everyone was learning to drive and and I couldn't that that kind of hit home so that those sort of teenage years around 16 17 that became a big thing 
Um, so I, I guess I was still in denial a bit at that stage as well, but it was just, again, that you just don't want to appear different and, mm. um, you know, wanting to, to fit in the crowd. And I, I'm not sure why we all do it when we're younger, but it, it does something that seems to happen a lot. And I see it a lot with, with others who are going through the same as what I did that, although we're a much more open society with regard to disability now, I think people still want to, to hide it for a while till they really start to accept it themselves. And it's not until you start using your cane or whatever other adaptions you might use that you realize how empowering it is and how actually having a story to tell is interesting and <laughs> it makes people actually want to talk to you and not actually get you further in life. So what it's such an important shift to, to go through. My advice would you give someone um, who might be listening to this who's maybe just been diagnosed um, and they're feeling like a bit down and bit down in dumps and feel as though they're the only one who's got RP and you're not sure what support's available. What would you say? Yeah, to I mean, first and foremost, sort of what, what you said, that thinking you're the only one, when in reality there are so many people suffering from RP and, well, globally, but even in the UK, wherever, wherever it may be, you know, there are so many of us out there. Um, and there are those who struggle with it. And there are those who are absolutely thriving. And there's loads of examples of people who are achieving incredible things who have RP um, just because they're, they're willing to put themselves out there and, and ask for help when they need it or, or find alternative ways to do things. So mm. I'd really say, first of all, it's just that look at what others are doing. Um, there's plenty of people out there. If you can find others with RP to talk to, great, because so many people have gone through it and understand it. Um, did, just, you find, uh, did you go out there and find other people with RP or were you in your so sort of bubble? I was in my bubble for a long time. Um, and it was when I got involved in Paralympic sport very tentatively initially that I went along to a day with there was people with various disabilities there and that was an instant eye-opener for me of like wow this there are some people with disabilities that I consider far worse than mine who are are managing fine and kind of chatting to people and seeing how other people cope and things was so inspiring and then when I got into the the GB team as well and you were seeing absolute elite athletes who had various disabilities and things so I I was very lucky to get into that setup because that it's just like a switch almost overnight of right well if these people are managing then i definitely should be i mean i'd seen a race on tv when i was watching an athletics event and they put on a race for people with a disability i think right. that was the first time um and then i became aware i mean i was aware of a few paralympians you know there was tanny gray thompson who was, who was well known and there was a few others at the time but it wasn't a well-known thing at that point um so i, I didn't really know who it was for but I saw a race on TV and there was someone with a visual impairment and I it crossed my mind at that point like I had no idea what sort of level of visual impairment you needed to be considered and um I'd always assumed that because I'd grown up with it that and you know as it got gradually worse I was adapting all the time and not really noticing the changes myself so I, I never considered my eyesight bad enough to be considered a disabled athlete again that denial of disability, I think. But yeah. because I'd seen this race, I, I think I then um, went on Google and checked Scottish Disability Sport and, and found an email contact and just asked the question of, you know, was there a day I could come along to? And then they they got back in touch and seemed quite excited and had realised 
that I, you know, what they'd research me and find out what times I run and, and realize that I might be someone that could actually be useful. So they suggested about getting the, the test done to see, see what level of eyesight I had. And it kind of went very quickly from that point. I guess I just made the right connections and um, they fast started as a things. Sprinter. And, that was your yeah, first sport yeah. to sprinting. 100 exactly. or 200 or both? Uh, well, yeah, one and 200 meters were my events, certainly in my later years. And um, as I said, I got fast-tracked onto the GB squad and that development team. And I, So that was sort of 2005, and I went to my first World Champs in 2006. So it was really quick turnaround. And obviously, I was essentially training as a full-time athlete anyway because it was a hobby I was doing like five times a week. Uh, it was only a little bit more I needed to do to be a full-time athlete. So I went to the world champs and I finished sixth and seventh in my, my two events. And, um, and then it was talk of Paralympics in two years were in Beijing in 2008. And suddenly that became my, my driver. I graduated in 2006 as well. So I became a full-time athlete at that point and had this focus of going to Beijing. And by the absolute skin in my teeth. physics? Um, physics, yeah. Which, you know... Um, well, it's over 10 years ago now, but I have absolutely zero recollection of, and it's not something I've used a whole lot, I have to say, in my sporting life, but um, yeah. I'm glad to have got through it. And again, that was that was a challenge um, with certain things, like certain experiments and things within the, uh, the university I had to, to work through. But again, I was, I was much more keen to ask for help, I think, around that age, so I got through that as well. Has that and, helped uh, you on your sporting journey? Having a... And, you know, not 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 from the actual knowledge particularly but i think just that um kind of experiencing life by going to university i think was really good and you know just putting yourself in, in different situations and meeting different people and and also being at university obviously there's quite a big sport drive so there was time that i could actually focus on athletics on the few years mm -hmm. preceding where i became a full-time athlete and i think it really helped me develop in that regard um yeah just again putting yourself out of your comfort zone a bit which you know through school and stuff it was all very comfy but university was a, a bit different when you're you're almost out in the almost the real world so it was a, it was a good experience i'm glad i've done it i know there can be challenges for people with visual impairments again and i was fortunate my eyesight was still at a decent enough level that i didn't have to make huge changes but you know it was um it was becoming more of a challenge and Occasionally, I get things like note takers for certain classes. You, you know, I couldn't see the board, and at that point, the technology wasn't good enough really to to get the notes. Otherwise, so you know, just finding workarounds and again, learning to ask for help, although it was still difficult. And part of that, I think, is being a, a man as well. That asking for help is not <laughs> not the easiest for us at times, but um, it's not. You know, just yeah, exactly. But it's that realization that often when you do ask for help, people are willing to help and. Are not going to think any less of you but it's, it's sometimes hard to, to think that isn't it we do sort of we're sort of in our shell of even going when you're in bars asking you know where the toilet is we try and battle our mm. way to the toilet whilst knocking to five different people on the way there and it would be a lot easier to just yeah. ask someone who may have been so it's, it's finding find the courage i think when you Absolutely. realize when, when you do it a few times you do that's when you realize but from an external sort of viewpoint, it, yeah, there's a lot of vulnerability there. Yeah, I, I always find it particularly hard, and that kind of highlights a real one that asking for toilets and finding toilets is always such a, a huge issue for me when I'm out and about. 
Mm. And one of the things I found when I do actually use my white cane, that at least you're someone who is uh, visibly visually impaired. So the fact yeah. you're asking isn't that doesn't seem that silly. Whereas when you're someone who you're not willing to use your cane and stuff, which is me for a long time, and I just struggle. And you go up and ask because you can't find something, and then you're stumbling around and people just assume you must have drunk too much or whatever and yeah but you know it's, it's just such a weird situation so I did you start using, using UK? um only probably only really i'm trying to think time's flying by but just over 10 years ago so i was well into my 20s probably about mid-20s up until right. that point i just refused um i felt like i didn't need it and i just started out initially using kind of a a signal cane where if it was dark and somewhere I really didn't know, then I might get out and use it occasionally, but it was pretty rare. And it's only the past couple of years I've been long cane trained as well. Um, and it, yeah, I just had to, to accept it. And I feel really foolish now looking back that I did struggle for so long without it yeah. because it's just, you know, it gives you that confidence and again, alerts other people. And the most important one was, people getting out of my way when I'm walking down the street in the dark or something. Whereas in the past, I just wouldn't see them coming. And if you walk into someone, then, you know, you're almost asking for a fight at times and depending on where you're walking. And um, if they see you've got a cane in your hand, well, it's a, it's a very different story, isn't it? So, yes, yeah. you're, you, you obviously fly to different countries. Do you notice mm. a difference um, on how people act um, yeah. around visually impaired people? It's very interesting, actually. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some places where clearly they're they're less aware, but the majority of places I've travelled to seem hyper aware when you've got a cane. Particularly North America. I mean, they're kind of falling over themselves to help you to the point it's almost too much at times, you know, because yeah. everyone just wants to be so helpful. But around Europe, I found it really good. And my wife, actually, Laura, who's also on the team, she's got a guide dog, which is obviously a, a far more recognisable. But um, we've recently started traveling with a guide dog around europe as well um brexit unfortunately might make that more of a challenge but it's a, a different story but um again yeah i mean there was a real fear with that of, of having a dog and going abroad as to what the sort of rules would be and things but so far in europe it's been great and uh, generally there's a, a pretty wide acceptance and understanding of, of what that is as well and um, it's great to experience how different nations approach it what I don't like is when someone people come up, come running up to you and grab you by the arm. Mm. Is there anything that you find a bit irritating or frustrating about how people act? How questions you get um, back to ask? I don't find so much these days. I think when I was um again when I was a bit younger with a, a chip on my shoulder, when I was being guided because I needed to be most of the time and someone would say, oh, there's a step coming up. And if I happened to see it, I'd get that kind of tone of, oh, yeah, I know I saw it. Yeah. And it's just quite sort of petulant and childish. Yeah. And I, I really yeah. regret that. So it was more my own self. But, I mean, there can be times people are a bit over the top. And it's, um, you know, if yeah. you're, you're managing fine on your own, which we often do, and yeah. you haven't asked for help, then it, sometimes it can be a bit much. Uh, and I often find it funny, again, particularly my wife having the dog, she tends to attract those people more. The amount of times people kind of say to her, they'll kind of bless you, I'll be, I'll be praying for you and thinking of you. And it's, well, we're doing fine, thanks, but I <laughs> yeah, appreciate it. But, you know, we're, we're getting by all right. So you worry about yourself, but it's, it's all good. Um, so, so, yeah, I think... Go back to your story, Neil. 
So yeah, go for it. You talk about two thousand. You 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 got into the athletics space, and you you approach you got into the team in two thousand seven. You went to world championships in two thousand. Yeah, and then and then on to to Beijing in two thousand and eight. So um, it all which, happened very quickly. Started yeah, it was, and I'd kind of gone from being a club athlete where it was my hobby to suddenly this full-time athlete and, and things were kind of going serious. Although my level of funding still wasn't very high at that point. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't earning much money for it, but um, in terms how of the Beijing games, how, I'm curious how you kept grounded when it's, things were going so well. To, to be honest at that point, I never considered them going that well. Um, and I was struggling with a lot of things mentally having finished university and I was this full-time athlete, but I wasn't really progressing. So although I came in and I was sort of sixth, seventh in the world, I wasn't moving forwards at all. I was training on my own up in Aberdeen a lot of the time. I was the only full-time athlete around. Um, and I was finding I just didn't have that social aspect anymore. I wasn't a university full-time athlete training on my own. So I'd only see kind of friends now and again, and it was just very lonely to be honest. Um, so it was quite a lonely time, but I stuck it out and I managed to make it to Beijing by skin of my teeth. I was pretty much last man on the team for the athletic squad. Um, yeah. And how did that go? I got there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a surreal experience and this is where kind of feet on the ground becomes quite challenging. So I arrive in Beijing for the games with, with all my kit for GB, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a Paralympian and it's this, this huge occasion and. I walk into the the uh, athletes village in Beijing, which is where all the the athletes and the the staff and and everything stayed prior to and during the games. Um, and I didn't really know what to expect at that stage, but you've just got these tower blocks all around that are adorned with different national flags, people from across the globe, all various disabilities, and just everything's huge. And we've got this food hall that's the size of two football pitches, and you know some of the visual impairment that's always a hugely daunting thing as well but yeah. you can't even see the whole whole tent that it's in it's um it's just enormous but i just i fell in love with the paralympic games at that point and just everything about it the, the sort of atmosphere the hype and just seeing all of these different people you know it's such a, a diverse place there's, there's nowhere more diverse on earth than a paralympic games village it's, it's incredible so i completely fell in love um in terms of the competition itself for me wasn't spectacular i in both my events i finished ninth overall with the top eight making the final so i missed out on the chance to race in the final uh right. but so was there a semi-final point, semi-final in the final yeah exactly exactly so um i was knocked di- out is it different would you like to explain the class is it classified yeah. in sprinting yeah so in terms of visual impairment there are three different classes um they are the 11s, 12s, and 13s, which in some sports are the B1s, B2s, B3s that people might know, uh, where the 3s or the 13s are the best sighted end of it, um, or the 1s or the 11s are the, the totally blind. So I was in the 3s, the 13s at that point in time. And they, as a runner in that class, you just run on your own. As a, a two or a twelve, then you have the option to run with a guide runner if you want. Um, and then as an eleven, you wear eye shades and you run with a guide, so you're you're totally blind at that stage. So right. it's a bit of a contrast. So so my event, there's uh, eight lanes, eight 
eight runners and you know it was it's just f1 out there on their own occasionally you get the odd runner who'd run out their lane slightly and get disqualified but most of the athletes had enough vision to kind of follow a white line for instance and stay within their lane um so yeah i, I went competed in the one and 200 meters and finished ninth overall in both events as i say and um that was my games done there but as i say i'd fallen in love with it but uh, so, i knew that the yeah. you come home London and games you come home and you finish yeah. ninth do you feel as though you failed um i wasn't pleased but it's funny you kind of come home from all that hype um as you say you're with teammates all the time it's, it's really buzzing atmosphere and i came back to aberdeen and well, all my friends are working nine to five so they were they were working my family was still in beijing actually doing the, the touristy thing i had to go home earlier with the team just the way the team flights worked and you almost walk in thinking oh well, maybe there'll be kind of a, a welcome at the airport for me but inevitably there's not you just walk in and no one's there and head home and i just had to put loads of washing on because i had all my clothes i've been wearing for the past nothing happened um and you often get this thing post games where you get a that post game blue from coming from this high point to suddenly just nothing you got nothing really on your horizon uh i'd heard about it but i experienced it to quite a a high degree of suddenly having no no real target nothing in mind Uh, but i was aware the the london games in 2012 were four years away and that was kind of a focus on my horizon um and that was what I was going to be working to because the thought of, you know, I'd fallen in love with the Paralympics. Competing at a Games was amazing, but the thought of competing at a home Games just sounded incredible, something that not many get to experience. So that, that was my target. So I had something. Um, but then a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from my manager at, at uh, UK Athletics who said, essentially, we don't think you've got the potential to make it to London and your funding is being cut with immediate effect. Um, and that was it. The dream was over and I was no longer part of the team and London seemed like something that was never going to happen for me. Uh, and this is where I kind of hit my, my real low. I mean, you talked at the start of the show about coming from depression. Um, and this was the point in time where suddenly I was thinking, right, I need to, to enter the real world. I need to get a job, got no income, um, got no real future at this point. So I started applying for side? jobs, but was Laura with no, you? No, no, I was no, I was single at that point. I'd I'd lost my my girlfriend of um uh, who I'd been with for just over a year, but it seemed like a devastating loss just a, a few months before that as well. So that kind of added to all the the fun of the the fair, you know. Um, so yeah, I started applying for jobs, but and just anything really. Um, although I had my physics degree, I just felt like I needed work, so I was applying for secretarial work and anything going and i couldn't get anything at all and i just kept getting the sort of standard replies of your you know you don't have enough experience it's a lot of tough competition for the role i started doing the you know on the, the application forms you can tick a box essentially that if you're someone with a disability that you'll uh, automatically be given the opportunity to have an interview so that you're not discounted during the application form phase and so I started doing that thinking, well, if I get to interview, at least, uh, you know, I can, I can chat to people and let them see how, how much I've got to offer. But a lot of questions kept coming up of, well, 
you know, they'd ask me the normal questions, but it'd always be that question of how do you think your disability will affect your work? Hmm. Um, and I hadn't really been aware it was going to be an issue, but it seemed to be, even though I could say, well, there's funding in place to, to help me out for any equipment I need, but a lot of people were quite tentative about it and I just couldn't get the jobs. Um, so that was the first time I became aware that my disability might actually be an issue. But yeah, as I said, I couldn't get a job. So I was going down the job center and signing on and um, essentially at that point with no hope at all. And I kind of slipped into computer games a lot. That was something I played a lot as when I was young. Again, I still, my eyesight was good enough to play most games quite well. Um, and, and most of my day playing games and this very addictive personality meant I enjoyed this different world that wasn't mine and got out of shape just went down that kind of spiral sadly and and it was a, a real kind of low point in my my life I'd like to ask part. you um no, go a, for a lot of, a lot of people go through like bad days so what do you think the difference is to having like a bad two or three days to actually the borderline to de- being depression what what sort of different things you do and how how do you know you're in depression and sort of you should actually take some action you get some help Mm. yeah for me it was almost a numb that I wasn't really sad about it anymore or anything but I just I, I wasn't feeling much at all um and just that kind of almost not not really caring anymore um so just that not feeling no bad, real desire not, not to get up in the morning yeah yeah exactly so I mean I'm sure there are very different ways it can present it but for me that was that was very much the case that if I didn't have games to get up for in the morning and some sort of target in that world, to I just wouldn't have bothered getting up, I don't think. So in some ways, I'm fortunate I had that addiction because at least it got me up and kept my focus on something. Cause I always, I'm very aware as a personality, I, I constantly need something to focus on. I've learned that in later life. And, mm. you know, that's why I found that as an addictive, uh, that addiction at that point in time, I think. But yeah, I've just, just very numb at that point. And, um, you know, I almost was at the point where I was accepting that I guess I'm going to be one of those people that just takes my benefits and um, plays games and that'll be it for me and, you know, so be it. And I was just fortunate that sort of one day, I think I, I woke up and I just had a bit of a, a spark and I can't really tell you why on that given day I did, but I woke up what and doing the day before? Day thought, Can you remember what you were doing the day before or the night before? yeah I mean I can't remember specifically but I'll hazard a guess I was probably playing football manager or something and just doing my normal thing you know um how long were you in this sort of this depression this depression place just to one or two months it wasn't a hugely yeah hugely long time so I got back from the Paralympics in um start of September and it was it was pretty soon after that that it, it really started and it was probably probably around um I think end of October or start of November where I had that initial spark and I'm not yeah. saying I came out of it straight away but uh, it was a process that started to unravel from that point where I I woke up and thought your target was was London 2012 and the thought of watching it on TV just seems so heartbreaking when you know you know what the Paralympics is and you know how massive it'll be and so I just decided that at that point I was going to research every sport 
where visual impairment was um where there's an event for a visually impaired athlete within the Paralympics. And then essentially I was going to try them all till I found one that I might be good enough at just to make it to London. And that became my, my sudden goal. I thought, well, I might as well give it a crack. And um, by chance, the the sport that I, I was a big fan of growing up was cycling. It was something I always watched on TV. So I put that at the top of my list. I'm going to give this a try. And I did something really out of the ordinary for myself like i'm i'm a very shy individual and making phone calls was something that i always found terrifying and still do actually i hate it it's just it's not something i'm comfortable with but i decided at that point to pick up the phone and i called the velodrome in manchester which at that time was the nearest indoor velodrome and i knew it was the base of british cycling as well and i asked you know how do you go about riding on the track and they said well these taster sessions that anyone can go along and have a go um and I, I signed up for a session and then I realized when I got off the phone, I never mentioned that I was visually impaired at all. And I thought, oh, well, you know, just, uh, this a disability session or was this like, no, uh, no, this was a, a completely able-bodied yeah. For anyone to go along. So right. I never mentioned, I couldn't see well, just, you know, partly cause I hadn't, I was so nervous on the phone. I kind of forgot. And then I thought, oh, maybe I should let them know. And I thought, you know what, they might not let me have a go and I've done this. So, I headed off from Aberdeen down to Manchester, which was, was over seven hours on the train. Um, did that journey by myself again, not something I'd usually do. And fortunately there was a, a friend who I knew from, from the athletics team who I stayed with down there, but I went along to the taster session, got on a, a solo bike and I made sure I kept well away from everyone else, but I kind of wobbled my way around the track and sort of, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I got around fine, didn't crash. And then, by chance, um, I'd, I was wearing my, my bag from the Beijing Games. It said Beijing 2008 on the back. And I was walking past someone and he just started warming up for, it turns out there was a Great Britain session taking place just after me. And he saw my bag and he got chatting to me a bit. And uh, he said, oh, I'm, uh, I used to be on the Olympic squads. Uh, I've just moved over to the, the Paralympic squads. I'm what's known as a pilot. I ride, a, ride on the front of a tandem and I need a visually impaired rider to go on the back of the bike. Do you know anyone who might be interested? And obviously I said, well, I might know a guy, you know. (laughs) Um, And just that chance of that's so unusual putting myself in a position that normally I just wouldn't, but putting myself in that environment that this opportunity suddenly presented itself. So do you think that that story has made you put yourself in other situations where an opportunity might unravel? Yeah, and... I still get very shy about these things and um, you know I, I do get nervous about putting yourself outside your comfort zone but I've learned through that experience and through many others subsequently that everything that's good that's happened has come when I've put myself in a situation that I wasn't comfortable with at all mm-hmm. so I think I've definitely learned to, I've learned to cope with that a bit more um, and and realize that there are opportunities out there and yeah I mean another them come along bigger than that in terms of just this moment that changed my history but I mean yeah chatting to him he kind of fast-tracked my progress with with GB got me in touch with the right people and by the the start early the next year I think it was April I got accepted onto the development squad and in June I moved to Manchester and it was all just snowballing incredibly quick um and then I raced to my first world championships that next year in November almost almost a year exactly after that low point 
I went to compete in my first world championships and, and um, there'd been a lot of work up to this point. So I'm skipping a fair bit of the story, but I went there and became a double world champion and double world record holder as well. And this incredible just explosion of good fortune and finding the sport that I was actually good at, that my life had just monumentally changed in the space of a year. Um, and, you know, it, it's defined the rest of my future since then. Yeah. I guess with your athletics background, you had them, I guess, competitive juices inside of you that just needs to be brought to the surface. Do you think that helped yeah. you? And, and so oh, what advice, how would you, what would you say to someone to, to find those competitive juices? So, yeah, it's, it's, I've always been a competitive person and those years of training in athletics were massively beneficial for me when I, I moved to cycling and, you know, although it was a new sport, I was a full-time athlete, essentially, bar a few months where I was at a low and not particularly training. So that helped my acceleration for sure. But in terms of that competitive edge, the thing that always worked for me actually was I've actually used my disability the whole time that those years growing up when I had that chip on my shoulder of if anyone found out I had a disability and suggested maybe I couldn't do something that attitude of I'm going to prove you wrong has always been pretty strong in me. Um, I don't know if that's just my kind of my way of being um, or if it's something I, I learned to, to use, but I found it happening a lot throughout my sporting career. There was, I remember distinctly one point in my, around the age of 15 or something, I just went to my athletics coach and I said, oh, these are the times I'd like to run next year. And he, he laughed at me because he thought they were so ridiculously fast. And that stuck with me then for the, the rest of the winter where I trained incredibly hard and first race of the season, sure enough, I came out and I, I got those times straight away. And it was just that fire in me of wanting to prove someone wrong. Like, I feel like it's not always the the best form of motivation, but if you can actually harness it in a positive way, it can be really, really powerful. Um, and I have yeah, used that. Got, I guess it can go both ways. Here. I guess it can yeah. go both ways. You can either sort of let it destroy you or it can let it um, drive you. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, some people, it does go too far. And it, But if you can harness that emotional drive, um, so that part of your brain, the emotional part is so much stronger than the logical. I mean, we all know when something happens that makes you feel really emotional, that it's just that flood takes over. So if you can control that, I've always found that so, so immensely helpful for sport. Um, there are some athletes who like to just be almost the computer of just do the job as it should be done. And then there are those who really stand up to the occasion. And that's something I've always prided myself on, that when the big day comes or whatever, I'm always going to be so fired up by it that I can use it as to my advantage. So I'd always suggest that it's something that people should should try and use as emotion for a bit of drive. But you kind of learn how much you can use and how much you can't just by experience, I think. Yeah, I think we use emotion, bad emotion, like anxiety, stress, overwhelm, as mm. negative. But we can actually turn that around and actually say, we've actually got a massive, because the only re where, reason why we're in that place we've got, is our imagination. So we can actually take a photo of that. We've got um, such a imagination and sort of channel that into turning, channeling that into a, maybe a positive story. Definitely. I, I always think we're in a, quite a lucky situation in some ways having RP because A, it gives you that prove people wrong opportunity and, and B for me it was always 
learning to problem solve over the years because you know as your eyesight gets worse you're constantly adapting how you do things even around the house and things like that you know and you have to become pretty adept at problem solving over the years i found just to get by so i think in some ways we've got an advantage really so it's just yeah, kind of embracing think, that and we um, knock into things a lot more than a per- fully sighted person would mm. you know i've lost track of how many times i've banged into a bump in the or like a bollard or i tripped over a curb and the, you know, the that... more then sort of failure stack up the more you sort of just get up and just get used to getting up and carrying on yeah for me that's something i still struggle with and i've had to change my way of thinking slightly in recent years so something i used in sport a lot it's kind of that case of having a a saying or a a mantra that i use to kind of motivate myself all the time so for me um as you know my book's coming out it's called earn your stripes and that was always a mantra in sport and the, the reason for that one is that in cycling when you become a world champion you you win a jersey that has five stripes on it. So each year you're trying to earn your stripes. Uh, and that always got me really motivated to train um, and could sort of change my way of thinking quite quickly whenever I say it to myself. And I realized that I struggle walking into things. I always feel really embarrassed and annoyed with myself when I walk into something, even though I'm well aware that most people probably didn't spot it or even care when they see me do it. But you know, it always affected me and it put me in quite a negative mood. For a lot of the day afterwards if I did something that I deemed to be stupid but I've kind of found having a little saying that I could say to myself after I walk into something was really helpful and it was just something so simple that I just say it's okay you're visually impaired and whenever I walked into something got that instant emotional trigger of like oh you, you idiot then I just say that to myself and I could almost laugh about it at that point which I found really helpful yes um, there we go because yeah. any of our listeners who have you feel a bit down or about tripping into things and maybe you could use that um sort of um to say you know you know you're, you, yeah. you call yourself yeah call yourself out and it's okay to laugh at yourself as well that's the other thing i found like rather than being embarrassed about it but i mean we are allowed i mean to be honest fully sighted people walk into things i've seen it happen trip up and fall over stuff and often we're probably more conscientious and aware of our surroundings than half the people that can see well but yeah i just just that learning to you know what it's, it's perfectly fine um you know if you ask anyone else's perspective and they say well the fact that you're visually impaired and you occasionally walk into something of course you do it's no big deal it's, but to us it seems such a big thing at times yeah exactly the fast forward on so, to i'd love to talk about London 2012. Um, so you with your pilot, um, yeah, it was, uh, Barney, Barney, Barney story yeah. at that point. Mm. Yeah. You, so you've, you've left, you're with that now. You've got four years to prepare for London 2012. Did you have a sort of a time that in mind that you sort of that you need to get to to win a medal? Um, it was quite an interesting one. So that year, Barney and I, had, um, there was a world championships in February and we had actually, we lost that to our teammates and we were very much considered the second favorites going to London. Um, so although I had been a world champion already, it was so competitive in our team. There was, there was another bike that were ahead of us at that point in 2012. And, um, 
yeah, they were they were probably looked on by the squad as the favourites, and I felt like we we had what it takes to win, but it was going to be a big ask. But again, there was that element of right. You, you're saying we're the second best bite. Let's just see about that. And that summer became a huge drive from both myself and Barney just to be in the best shape possible come the games. So we knew in order to beat our teammates, we were going to have to go very fast. Um, so we were in two events at that that games, but it was predominantly the one kilometer time trial that we were focusing on, which is four laps of the velodrome, which is a 250 meter track. And it's a time-based event where there's one bike on the track at a time um, and it's sort of seeded. So the bikes should in theory get quicker and quicker as the event goes on. And at the end of the day, whoever has the quickest time wins the gold. And, and that's it. It's quite a simple event really. Um, but we knew we were going to have to go incredibly quick if we we're going to beat our teammates, let alone the rest of the world who were obviously, you know, fighting for that medal as well. Um, and I didn't really know how quick we, we were going to go by any means, but I knew we were in great shape. We, we worked so, so hard. And on that day, um, it was just an incredible experience where the velodrome in, in London, I think it seats around 6,000, 6,500, which isn't a huge amount, but the way the sort of roof is shaped, it's um, it's known as the Pringle because it sort of resembles a Pringle crisp where it's slanted mm. down. So all the noise comes from the stands, like slants down onto the track and it's just deafeningly loud especially when there's a stadium full of very excitable brits in there um we were the first event of the day and um you know got announced going up onto track and this immense roar suddenly just because they say you're from great britain it was just huge and it was one of those moments where you suddenly think wow this is this is big um you know i wanted to be part of the games for so long because it was going to be a home game and you never really realize the magnitude of it but it was just it was just huge and it'd been quite easy at that point to to either thrive under that pressure or crumble you know you're very aware of tv cameras around and this crowd cheering you on but the race itself um went well in that the first few laps we were where we wanted to be were very strong and then what tends to happen in the event is it's over about just over 60 seconds at that point. So you go as hard as you can, you gradually fade as the event goes on. That's just sort of the nature of it. Uh, so those last couple laps, as we naturally start to fade, which is always the way, I suddenly became very aware of the crowd noise again, because you kind of, when you're inside your, your race mode, you've got your helmet on, you almost shut off to all that noise during the race. But I suddenly became aware of these huge roars from the crowd. And that just kind of helped me find that something extra. We came around and crossed the, the line after four laps and I just heard the announcer like clear as day saying new world record and just instantaneous. Like I didn't know what the time was yet, but that release of emotion, I just started celebrating um, this, this huge moment where we'd achieved a time that was much quicker than anyone had ever gone. And we'd obviously kind of used this occasion to, to not only break the world record, but then we held on to, to take the gold medal as well. So I watched it on YouTube last night, Neil. Um, <laughs> and it is the Australian commentator. And yes, another she one. Was that one, yeah. And she was talking about your flying start. Uh, when they kept showing the replays, she, she was kept mentioning that. Is that something that you worked on? You gain out them blocks? Yeah, I mean, coming from that, that real sprinter background that I had of one and 200 meter runner, then the start was always something really 
big for me. So I consider myself, especially at that point in my career, I didn't really have the, like riding for a minute for me was this huge shock to the system because I was used to running for just over 10 seconds, you know, (laughs) so it was really hard. So I just would attack it as hard as I could, get the bike as quick as it possibly could and then hang on for dear life, essentially. So it was all about just getting getting out the best start possible, get this big lead and then and hold on. And usually we'd struggle to hold on, but that day something different happened where whether it was the crowd or just the occasion, but you know, you find that something extra and, and sure enough we we didn't really slow down anywhere near as much as normal and, and took out a lot of time off of the end actually. And and going back to you mentioning watching it, it's funny, I, I hadn't watched it back for years and years until the point when I was writing the book and I needed to double check my memories were correct almost and that's when I first watched it back so I don't tell you to watch my races back so it was, it was really weird seeing it so I've seen that footage and it's a lot of yeah, it's quite surreal watching it back a lot of people say you've win you've had big the cats got watching it so that's that's really interesting that a few years to actually because if I won a gold medal yeah. I'd be straight on why after yeah. again so I don't know it's, it's it's a funny one really that I guess it was um whether it's kind of thinking on to the next thing or I don't know I just always felt like it was a bit yeah I don't know I just was never comfortable watching it for some reason a testament of how grounded you are or how much Um, how neutral you are it almost doesn't say grounded saying you think you're grounded but yeah I mean I've I've never really risen to it because reality is that you win a Paralympic gold medal that's great and people appreciate you for doing it but no one recognizes me in the street. Let's let's not get carried away. You know, I'm not, I'm no celeb. I'm nothing like that, which is good because we actually, for that two weeks during London and after it, we were like rock stars. We're literally, you'd go out and about in the city to different events and we had to have security around us and F1 recognized us and it was just bizarre. And I could not live like that. I mean, it was great fun for a couple of weeks, but the last thing you want when you're you know you're going into town for a cup of coffee which obviously we can't do just now but you know you don't want to be recognized it's the last thing I want to be honest so I've I've always been quite comfortable just being just being me and just getting on with it I'm not in it for the fame I'm just in it to kind of improve and achieve the most I can achieve out of sport yeah Um, so watching it back just seemed a bit weird to me at times but yeah, I actually watched it back. It did bring a lot of emotions, and I guess I might be more inclined to now because it, you know it's nice to actually reflect a bit and remember that you have done some cool things in your past. So eight years have passed since. So you've been mm. to 2016 was in Rio. In Rio, yeah, um, that was another low point for me. Actually, I'd gone four years undefeated up until that point in international sport from London. I hadn't lost a race after London up until that day. And we actually came away with a, a silver medal there, um, beaten by a, a phenomenal team from the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, when I thought my career was coming to an end. I, I lost the world championship titles a few months later as well. So I'd lost my Paralympic and world titles and thought it was the end of my career. But I made some real switches. Um, I still had my Commonwealth titles to defend. So I decided I was going to stick it out. Made some real changes to how I approached life and sport. and. Um, it kind of brought a whole new level of performance actually. And I got back on top and um, the plan was that I was going to uh, go and win my Paralympic title back this year, but with the, yeah. the postponement sadly of Tokyo, then I'm going to have to wait another year at least to, to hopefully yeah. get that back. Yeah. That sounds, 
it's um, next July. Is it on next July now? Scheduled? Yeah. So um, currently scheduled for yeah summer twenty twenty one. But in the meantime, uh, hopefully it goes it, ahead. Hmm. In the meantime, it looks like you're you'll be very busy um, launching your new book. Um, yeah. So it's been a tell me about that. Yeah, it's been a real godsend in some ways because I planned to release the book anyway, but I was going to be so busy getting ready for the Paralympics and I had no realization of how much work I needed. But yeah, it, this all comes about from post 2016 where I got, I started to realize I needed to plan for my future after sport at that point because I've got no other source of income or really any idea what I'm going to do post sport at that point. And I'm thinking my career is coming to an end. So I started exploring things and did a few courses and realized after a bit of reflection that I had something to offer that I'd learned from sport throughout the years sort of around performance and how you get the most out of yourself. Um, it, someone suggested to me that if I really wanted to, to excel, it'd be a good time to, to write a book. And that's something I started in 2018. Um, and it's, you know, a strong part of it. Most of it's autobiographical, but there's a, a big part in it as well, which discusses different techniques that I use in sport to get the most out of myself like how you, you get that world-leading performance. And it can be applied to, to people. It's aimed at a, a business audience, that area yeah. of it, but it can be applied to anything in life, to be honest. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if, mm. if someone's listened to this who've, who've got RP, you may, might find it difficult to, you know, might not be in a position to start a business or might not be able to work. What aspects of the book do you think will sort of resonate with most, find most beneficial to be able to talk about? Yeah, well, there's sort of five key areas that I look at um, that I think you need to to excel in if you want to be a real world leader in whatever you're doing. But the first one of that's drive, and that's finding your motivation, um, the kind of, a lot of people call it their why. So why you get out of bed in the morning, essentially, what it is that really motivates you. And I kind of delved into that a bit about finding what motivates you, because at the end of the day, none of us achieve anything without having a reason that we want to push ourselves. Um, so that's a that's a big part of it. It then looks at kind of performance about how you go about day to day, getting the most out of yourself. Uh, the team, which is kind of having people around you to to help you or or to kind of you know almost some mentor roles or or experts in different fields. It depends if you're looking at, at business or or yourself in these situations, but probably the most important ones around mindset which as an athlete it's been so important in my career that there are days I get up in the morning and I don't fancy pushing my body to the limit and training hard but I've got no option I've got to find a way to do it day in day out and it's how you find that kind of that inner strength um and I don't think you need to be a, a particularly resilient or mentally tough person it's just having these sort of systems in place that help you get the most out yourself so on those days when you don't really feel overly motivated you still manage to get the job done get out of bed and, and you know take action and then the final step is how you perform in high pressure situations so like going back to that london race of making sure you're someone who excels rather than someone who crumbles and in those situations that it can go either way um and yeah i just outline sort of a few other stories from my sporting career that sure where I've put these into place and how they've helped me. And um, yeah, I think it's, there's lessons to be learned in the book, but it's also a pretty good story. There's, there's plenty of detail in there about my sporting career and the ups and downs. And although I've had lots of success, there've been plenty of low points as well. And I think that makes a good story at the end of the day. Do you distinguish 
your failure to be positive is how do you sort of mentally is there, have you got a system in place a strategy in place yeah. when you're feeling down that how you turn it around i mean those biggest failures that i've had so losing my funding back in 2008 i didn't bounce back straight away by any means uh that silver medal in rio which again i know a silver medal sounds a great achievement but for me at that point was a complete failure i didn't bounce back straight away then either um and i'm no one's saying you have to be someone who just bounces straight off the floor and you're straight back up but for me it's been being able to reflect so something we do in sport a lot is uh something called debriefing where win or lose after a race we get together like myself my coach my, my tandem partner and you discuss the race and what happened and you get that different perspective on it um i think you can get very much stuck in your own head at times uh and things to sort of spiral you hang on to a, the one negative thing that's happened and we're all very guilty of that you just grab onto it and forget all the positive things but if you do the sort of debriefing and chatting with other people get their perspective it kind of gives you that clarity of what the situation actually looks like so in a from... real life situation it, someone's mm. listening to it. it could be getting in touch with their friends or a family member yeah exactly talking about, so talking about how they feel yeah um and yeah i have another system in place as well actually for something that often comes as a result of this but if you've got these sort of limiting beliefs that are stopping you from from taking action that how you overcome them as well and it's this kind of ability to um the key part is looking at things from someone else's perspective again so you know what would other people if you told them the situation what would they say about it so I think sharing with friends is important in so many situations that getting that other people's perspective so you can see it the bigger picture because um the amount of times in my sporting career where you know if I've had a bad training session it's one training session but it's gone badly and suddenly I think well that's it you know I've I've passed my best it's all coming to an end and then you just chat to someone who pretty simply puts it to you that you know it's just one session there's a reason for this you've been training hard lately and yeah, we we just struggle to see it uh, sometimes from ourselves. So yeah, definitely get in touch with people. Um, Another perspective. Sometimes those, yeah, and, and not always family members. They can be great, but sometimes family members and things can be so caring about you that they're not willing to tell you the the hard truths at times as well. So for me, my training group's always been really strong. So kind of finding peers who are also willing. I mean, some family members are willing to tell you the home truths. Let's be honest, but. Sometimes you don't always need to hear the positive things. Sometimes the odd little kick up the backside can be useful as well. So it's, de it's definitely good to get that perspective as best you can from others and, and not get lost in your own head at times. It's, it's far too easy to do that. Yeah, and I, I, I can testify to that. And yeah, we're obviously in uncertain times at the moment. And I'm sure everyone at physical health at risk, but also mental health as uh, well. Mm. People have been sat home. A lot of time to think about things, a lot of time in your own head. Um, is there anything different you've been doing in lockdown in terms of your mental health, you learning new um, skills? Yeah, so something I've learned in recent years is for me, as a full-time athlete, initially I was fully immersed in my sport and to the point where nothing else mattered. Um, I felt like in order to be the best in the world, I had to be completely dedicated to it. 
that's great when things are going well, but when things were going badly, it's just soul destroying because your whole world just caves in. Um, and it's only recent years, as I say, since 2016 that I've started having interests outside of sport as well. And rather than it detracting from my sport, my main focus has been really beneficial and has actually made me perform better as an athlete. So I think in any area of life, to be honest, just having something else, a different focus is so important. So for, for us in lockdown, I mean, this isn't particularly good for, for people with, uh, who are athletes, I have to admit, but we've decided to take up myself and, and Laura um, sort of isolation wine tasting course we're doing where we're uh, listening along to an audiobook about wine tasting and we're learning that as a new skill so of course in moderation I have to stay in good shape but uh, just having this different focus has been great and and obviously I've been quite distracted with the book so yeah, yeah. I, I'm someone who always needs something to focus on but I like to have a, a few different things in the air so yeah just just finding that distraction you enjoy that yeah, you know so helps you forget out there there's so many lessons mm. out there online and um, and so much of it's free these days as well which is great that's a benefit of lockdown you can find so many things yeah so it's just finding the it's, it's, I, for me it started when you're thinking about it's doing it because um the longer you think about it, the less chance you are of taking action oh yeah is that that first step's the hardest without a doubt like i've learned that from training like the thought of a training session always makes me think oh god not again but as soon as you get going with things, you know, it's never as bad as you think. It's just that first yeah. step, isn't it? But yeah, I just encourage everyone, all the listeners to, to try something new. Um, you, again, you know, open up those opportunities. You'd be surprised what, what trying something new can actually bring sometimes. Brilliant. Um, so when is your book out? The book is out on the 3rd of June. As the paperback and the Kindle version, an audiobook is on its way as well. I don't have a definite date, but it is. it will be with us very soon. Um, Great. Are you going to be speaking the audiobook? I'm not actually. Initially, the plan had been that I would have some involvement, but with lockdown, it's made it very tricky. But I've managed to find one of my favorite narrators um, of quite a few audiobooks who's going to who's recorded it already. It's now in editing. I can't give much more away than that, but yeah, very soon it'll be out there. And um, that one excites me as someone who I can't really read. Well, I can't read text any more than audiobooks are, are my life. I've spent yeah. so much so time with the story, same, so. same date as the paperback? I think, I think it'll be a few weeks later. Yeah. Um, but I'm hoping by the end of June. If not, it'll be very, it'll certainly be out this summer. Um, and uh, if anyone wants to, to check it out, then I'll be announcing it on social media and things. So uh, I'm, I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. I am excited. I've had the pleasure of reading the first chapter and it's sort of given me that um, taste of um, looking forward to it. Is there anything, Neil, that, I've, that I haven't asked you that you might ask yourself about anything, your journey or any advice? No, no not really. I, mean, I, think, I think we cover a lot and a lot of it, you know, talking about RP is, is quite interesting for me because I don't do it very often and that reflecting back on how long it's taken me to kind of accept things in my life but I think the the biggest moment for me was um when I met my my now wife Laura who's totally blind and um I used to because I couldn't see much in the dark and uh I found sort of dark areas quite daunting I'd never go to things like music concerts or anything because obviously loud noises and darkness is, is pretty tough for us at times and there might be other people out there who, who struggle with that too 
but she came along with no sight at all and um you know said to me oh do you want to do you want to go to a concert and i said oh i can't and then she kind of pointed out that she was perfectly capable so why the hell am i not and it was such a great wake up call and a kick up the rear again that you know if if someone who's in far worse situation than me can manage then why can't i and so that real tough love kind of came in and yeah i mean just again encourage people to go out and look around and and see how others are coping because they're always someone in a worse situation who seems to be getting by and they've got techniques and reasons for doing it and it's it's taught me so much seeing someone with with no sight coping and it's given me a lot of hope for the future when my sight inevitably goes as well that I'll still have a life I've just got to adapt so yeah that that's the kind of that's been my biggest learning over the recent years I think is if is anyone listening to this who's been inspired to take up paracycling how, how would they get started what's the first step yeah well, there's there's actually a drive for new athletes to get involved in para sport at the moment particularly paracycling with looking ahead to the the paris games so get in touch with uh, with british cycling i can't remember the exact email address but there's um the para squad team there's disability advisors i think you can find it through the website fairly easy there's also british blind sport who have a lot of different sporting options out there for for us who can't see so well so there's so many cool fun things to do and again and yeah accept accept your visual impairment and been to velodrome and i've done the power testing so and i tried the, mm. the taster sessions around the track as well and it's a great setup i actually mm-hmm. joined very tandem club as well so you've got Oh and wow, yeah. um, and they go out on fifty mile fifty mile runs to Southport and back. So I'm not sure what's available in the country, but if you're in the Manchester area, then yeah, contact Barry Tanner Club or get in touch with a velodrome. And yeah, we can maybe find some links and put it in the show notes to this podcast. And absolutely. And do you have any links you'd like to share and how to keep in touch with you? Yeah, I mean, I'm on most social media platforms. And um, if you just search Neil Fahey, uh, I think I'm at Neil Fahey on, on everything these days, which will be in the notes. But yeah, N-E-I-L-F-A-C-H-I-E. It's a, an unusual last name. But yeah, you can follow me on social media and I'll, I'll let people know about the book coming out. And uh, and any questions as well, I'd, I'd love to answer. If any listeners want to ask me a question, then I'm happy to you know, just get in touch and give me a shout and I'll, I'll happily give advice or, or you can give me some advice even better. Yeah, it's been um, an absolute pleasure having you on, Neil. And yeah, likewise. All the best with um, lockdown, your wine tasting, and the rest of your journey, and your your book. Really excited about that. Yeah. So, thank. Thanks for thank listening, you very everyone. Much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Neil. And thanks for listening to Neil.